Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, the ushers have one. They will uh, come down the aisle and make sure you get one. Luke chapter 15. Once you get there, you're just going to hang out there for quite a, quite a while before we actually get to it. Uh, again, lift your hand up really high. I have a routine in my study life now. Um, I use a, there's a McDonald's by my house, and I always study at this McDonald's. I've told you this before. And uh, it's a great McDonald's in that it doesn't have a playland. There's nothing fun for kids to do. Um, it has a player piano in the middle of it, so it's really irritating, so most people don't stay long. Um, but I can go there for hours. And, uh, and I got a, got a quarter bench, and I sit off the edge, and it's got two walls, and people can't see me coming in, and I, I can take over two tables, and, and I sit there all day. And, and I do that because I don't want to be interrupted. Um, and no offense to you, if you see me, I'm trying to keep my head down because I'll never get anything done. And so um, I put on headphones and, and I kind of set stuff out. And every once in a while in that study time, I'll notice somebody watching. You know that feeling you get? Somebody's just staring at you. And I always feel like this like confused sense of obligation, like should I stop what I'm doing and make sure I know who they are and, and should we have a conversation? If I do that to everybody who stares, I'm never going to get anything done. So I kind of try to keep my head down headphones. you think the whole visual would say to people, he's kind of busy. Um, but I was sitting there on Wednesday, and I just felt the eyes. And uh, I kind of peeked out of the corner of my eye, and this, there was a table to my right, and it was a table full of women. And I could tell they were over there looking at me, and they would talk, and I thought, well, maybe they know me. I, they don't look familiar to me. Maybe they know who I am, or maybe they're interested in what I'm doing. But sure enough, after they got done doing whatever they were there for, uh, one of them got up and came over to me and said, hi, how are you? What are you doing? And I said, well, I'm studying the Bible. I'm getting ready to teach a, a lesson. And, uh, oh, well, that's interesting. And then she lays down a, a track, you know. And she, she puts down this uh, Jehovah Witness um, watchtower track and started asking me about um, Jesus and um, she was really nice, by the way. If I, if I were to describe her, she was a pleasant, engaging, great listener, intentional, on mission, but dead wrong. You know? Like if you were going to describe the characteristics of a person who's going to kind of go about proselytizing, she'd have it. She was, she was uh, kind and patient, and she didn't want to take too much time. She was really precise, and she was well-prepared, and, and yet after just a short couple minutes, she's dead wrong. Dead wrong about Jesus, dead wrong about grace, dead wrong about salvation, dead wrong about the Trinity, dead wrong. And, and the reason why I bring this up as an illustration is because we've been using this paragraph by Tozer to kind of fertilize our conversations in the 4G study. And it's that, that phrase that Tozer says that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And here's why, if you use her as an illustration. Because what if you're wrong? What if your perspective on God and how God works with man, how, how God re represents himself in Jesus or whatever, what if you're wrong about your perspective on, on God? Well, then there's a couple of side effects to that, right? There's potentially this ginormous, uh, eternal consequence. Like if you're wrong on grace, if you're wrong on Jesus, if Jesus is just man, right? If he's just a human like we are, a good teacher, a prophet. He has no capacity whatsoever to bear your sin or to deliver you righteousness because he's just like one of us. Then someday, somewhere, if you're a sinner, if there's a moral 
truth out there, you're going to stand before, according to the scriptures clearly, stand before God and be separated for an eternity in a place called hell. Huge, huge, huge eternal consequences. And then secondly, right, let's, let's say you're wrong just now, just a little bit wrong. You spend your living life struggling with insecurities and stress and you don't have peace and you got no hope. And you're working your tail off, you're being religious, and religious is a yoke of slavery, the Bible says, that just will wear you out. And some of you are here today because your perspective on God isn't accurate about him, and so therefore all of the so what's in your spiritual life are duty and failure and insecurity and guilt. Do you get it? You see why what you think about God is the most important thing about you because if you're wrong, it has huge consequences. So in these last four weeks, today is our final week together, we have been looking at, in essence, a character study of God. We've called it the four G's because Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, kind of writes a half chapter on these four particular points he entitles the four G's. And the first week we looked at God is great so you don't have to be in control. A lot of us, a lot of us uh, struggle with God's control. I mean, it's one thing to agree that it's true. It's another thing to flourish under his sovereignty. I just had a conversation with somebody just, just 20 minutes ago, and they were struggling with things outside of their control. And I get it. We all have those moments. But when they're outside of your control, they're clearly not outside of his control. So how a believer responds to that truth based on the character of God is that in the process of dealing with stuff you don't want, you can flourish and experience joy and bless people and do ministry because he's in control. And so if God is truly great, then that affects our life. If we talked about the second week, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear other people. We don't have to go around worried about others. We worry about him and everything else takes care of itself. Last week, we talked about God being good, so good that we don't have to look elsewhere. In fact, it confronts our idols, right? And I gave you sort of a punchline. It'd be a great bumper sticker. We don't want to just say God is good. We want to say that he is better. So whenever you're out there doing what you're doing, and myself included, whatever offers itself as happiness or joy apart from Jesus, it's not telling you the truth. And so maybe we say this enough to ourselves, confess it enough out loud that when that thing presents itself as an option, we shake our head and go, "Uh -uh, Jesus is better. Whatever that looks like right now, whatever joy that looks like it's going to offer and satisfaction and peace and all that stuff, I don't care what it is, Jesus is better. He's better. And isn't that the lie that Satan kind of perpetrates on the church? He never brings you really bad things labeled pain and suffering and says, take it as an option. He brings you good things and says, all you got to do is just lean this way. Just lean this way. And by the way, all these things that you're looking for, joy and peace and hope and all that, it's here. Well, it's a lie. It's twisted. They might be good things that God made, but anything good is not great. And, and we've got to tell ourselves all the time, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So when you're tempted, when you're tempted in that situation to think, well, maybe that will make me happy, hopefully what pops up in our thinking is the truth of God's goodness. He is truly better. Amen, church? Last G of our study together that Tim Chester presents to us is God is gracious. So gracious we don't have to prove ourselves. Now, I'm going to confess something, and you can hold me accountable to it later. I was, again, studying this week, and I thought, you know what? I've got another G. I'm not going to tell you what that is yet, um, but I think in several weeks we're going to come back to it. I think there's a, there's a biblical 
perspective on the character of God that would help us in our understanding. If we're going to use this really cute kind of 4Gs, let's just make it 5Gs. I'm going to tell you what it is in a few weeks. But for now, just the Tim Chester uh, outline is that God is gracious. So we don't have to prove ourselves. I'm going to make this statement. It's, a, it's pretty big and broad, but I'll, I, I'll bet you'll agree with it. Um, if there is, and I believe this, if there is one thing about God one thing about the Christian, biblical, orthodox Christian God that is the hardest to understand as Christians and non-Christians universally, it's the issue of his grace. I can tell you about God's wrath. Somehow that makes sense to us. I could tell you about his being sovereign. You know, we might not like it, but that makes sense to us. God being in total control makes sense to us. When I say he's gracious, it confronts the failure and the legalism every person. Every person. What, what makes Christianity different than every other religion on the planet is this word grace. Everything, everything in us, in our flesh, every religion that's out there presents itself as a ladder to climb to approval, to merit some version, whatever perverted version it is, of salvation or future hope, right? Agreed? So there is a big deal about Grace Church, and we're just gonna we're gonna spend time saturated in it this morning and, and kind of taking a look at the backside and wondering, well, if we believe it, if it's easy to confess with our mouth, then why do we live differently? Because it it's clear, even from the outline of Tim Chester, this, this character of God's graciousness should have an impact more than oh, when I get done with this life, I'll spend eternity with Jesus. It needs to affect our life today, agreed? Grace, God's grace needs to make an impact. So let me just read a couple of truths from the scripture, from the epistles, about the gracious heart of God towards us who believe. Listen to this, and I don't want you looking down. Don't try to write it down. Um, just listen and let the Holy Spirit kind of nourish your heart with this. Romans 3, Paul says this in verse 21 through 24. But now a righteousness apart from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no man would boast. In John 1, 16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. I mean, that's the writer's version of saying, I don't know how to tell you how much grace you have. It overflows the boundaries. You have buckets of grace. So grace upon grace, church, that's what we have. Romans eleven six, 6, Paul says, but if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Confronting what comes in the heart of man naturally is the idea of performance. And Paul is making the point, well, if it's truly of grace, and he's made his case in the first 10 chapters, then it can't be of works. Ephesians 1, 7, again, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What makes what we believe, and I'm not saying we're special, we're talking about biblical Christianity as defined in the scriptures. What makes this different than everything else, even our hearts, is that God gives us what we don't deserve. Amen? It's absurd 
Haven't you, stop for a second, just do your own little triage. Haven't you somewhere in your life been so overwhelmed with your choices, your decisions, your sin, and, and are staggered that somehow God could keep coming? Aren't you just like blown away? Is it possible? Isn't that where Satan directly attacks us to try to convince us that somehow the grace has a limit? Like he will get exhausted with us? Like he discovers something new next week about us he didn't know, and that was the deal breaker, and God goes, okay, we're done. You are wearing me out. Just like we are parents with our kids. Like I'm sick and tired of this. Everything changes starting today. Grace is absurd. And we're going to define grace. Clearly those passages talk about the grace being authored from Christ and his finished work. But before we do that, I want to wrestle with this issue of why we struggle. And the reason why I believe we struggle with this understanding and probably more importantly believing to a point that changes how we behave about grace is because Satan's sin in our flesh are programmed to, to prove ourselves. We're programmed that way. That's who we are. Earn it. Work for it. Matter. Isn't that true? I mean, I watch a lot of football. In fact, I have to work out pretty hard in the summer so that I can lay around all fall. Because yesterday I watched four preseason games. How sick is that? They don't matter to anybody, either me, but I watched them. My back is killing me, by the way. Um, but I love, I love the whole, like, drama of football. You watch the draft and these jocks who have everybody tell them the greatest thing that ever happened to the sport, right? They, they show up at the draft and then somebody doesn't think they're that hot and they don't go drafted. And so they put a chip on their shoulder and spend the rest of their career going, I want to prove all the naysayers wrong. Because in our DNA, we're made to prove ourselves. You, um, I sort of like the Rocky flicks. I mean, I stop at like Rocky 20 or whatever they are. I don't know, somewhere early on. But do you, you remember when Rocky was fighting? I think it was probably the second picture and Adrian really didn't want him to fight. She really was concerned about his safety and he wanted to fight really bad. And then he had this his statement. He goes, I just got to prove to myself that I'm not a bum. Remember that? That could be the statement that every person who walks on the planet lives with. I just want to prove that I'm not a bum. Because what if I was? Like, what if I was? I'm always looking for somebody who's worse off than me so I can compare myself and go, oh, at least I'm not that bad off. I think that's the, that's the wrestling match. So how do we prove our, how do we try to prove ourselves? I think some, some of us are massively defensive. Some of us have to win. Some of us fight and are angry. That's our version of, of proving ourselves. Some of us have to be right we have to be better than others. We have to make more money. We have to have better behaved kids than somebody else. We have to have a high position. We have to live a certain way. Religion, legalism, being different. I don't care what it is. You're trying to matter. When I first got married, you're going to think I'm an idiot, and I am, so just be gentle. Um, I didn't think about all the necessary logical steps before they happen. I just ran into them, you know what I mean? So got married, oh boy, I better figure out being responsible. I need to provide for my family. So I was looking for work that would do that. And I, I got a job working for the laborers union in Chicago. They pay really well, but they work you really hard, you know? And so all my company did was a lot of cement work, a lot of digging, a lot of jackhammer work. And that was basically all I did every day. And, and I remember being the newbie on the, on the team. And these guys were grizzled veterans, you know? They were scarred and dirty, and they looked and acted like it, but they could work. And I thought, mm, 
I'm, I'm young and I'm still spry. I could, I could outwork them. So I was always looking to prove myself. And one day our boss sends us out to this sidewalk job. And it was about, it was about 500 feet of, of cement. We had to break first with a jackhammer and then move by a wheelbarrow. So one guy who was a really good um, operator, he was breaking all the cement. I was trying to keep up with the wheelbarrow. Now, if you know anything about wheelbarrows, right in front of the wheel is a thing called the brake. It's a little bar. And it's intended for you to lift up and it'll hit the ground and then you can dump the contents. Right? Okay, so, so I had this thing, and I was loading huge chunks. So I had 400 pounds of cement, and I was running, running as hard as I could. I mean, we are hours into it, and I was sweating. I was running uphill, dumping. I was keeping up with them, and I was going to earn my way under the team. They're going to think I'm special or whatever. And then right in the middle of the run, like a dead-on run, I lifted it up too high, you know, and the brake caught the ground, and I went pew, right <laughs> over the top of the wheelbarrow. I landed on my back with cement everywhere. And, of course, all these guys, <laughs> you know, they had this judgmental, rookie, newbie, you don't know what you're doing kind of a deal. I wanted so bad to be as bad as these laborers. And I made a fool out of myself. So, so just, just snapshot that. As corny as that is, there is a version of us on our wheelbarrows running around in life, loading up our approvals and our men's successes, and hopefully people would notice and, and somewhere the brake's coming out. Somewhere you're going to flip over the handlebars and you're going to look like the idiot you are. You're going to do that because that's how it happens. You, you can never be so foolproof in how you live your life that someone isn't going to look at and go, you've dropped the ball. You're not what you should be, right? And therefore, when our flesh, when Satan, when sin tries to dictate, prove yourself, it connects right to that anti-God, anti-gospel, anti-grace thought. Work your way out of this. So we spend our time trying to prove ourselves in lots of different ways. And it has a huge ramification. So let me just list for you what happens when we either don't believe that, that God's grace applies to me or we spend our time struggling with that truth. Here's one way, performance. We attempt to earn God's favor by what we do. You could use the word pride or self-righteousness. This would be what Jesus accused the Pharisees of. This is why Jesus said, you're just full of dead men's bones. It wasn't that Jesus thought they were worse than other men. They thought they had it, right? And how much of a deeper darkness is it for you to go, I'm good to go, I've arrived only to be in the same need as everybody else. Jesus hung around with sinners and prostitutes and bad people because those people didn't argue with the statement, you have a need. But we could. So what do we do? We have a tendency to do some performance things to merit God's favor, to merit his attention. The scriptures would call it self-righteousness. We try to make it up to God, so whenever we fail, we work harder, don't we? We pull ourselves up by our little bootstraps, and we try to study more, or serve more, or give more, or, or, or whatever. We try to make it up to God, try to meet his standards on our own. I know Jesus died for me, but I got to make happy. How many times have you wrestled with that thought? That clearly after your really, really pathetically bad week, that God's not happy with you this week. But somehow he's up there just going, oh, gosh, if I knew this. And so you try to be better because to have him not be happy with you would overwhelm you. So is this good today, God? Is this good today, God? Is, is that confession today good, God? Is this good? And so we struggle with spiritual insecurity because of this performance issue, trying to merit or prove ourselves to him. 
When we don't believe grace, we spend some time pretending to be somebody we're not. Um, I think a place like this is a great place to pretend. I don't know who said it, but, but church is a great place to hide from God. Because you, you look great. I mean, to be honest, you look like everybody else in here. I mean, you're sitting quiet when I'm talking, and we're going to stand in a little bit and worship, and you'll probably stand. And when we're done, you'll walk out, and you'll look like everybody else. No one will know at all what you're dealing with, will they? You could totally keep up the front that, that things are just consistent with you when your world could be totally falling apart. You could be sitting here today going, I have no idea if my marriage is going to make it. I have no idea if my job's going to make it. I have no idea if my kids are going to make it. I have no idea if I'm going to make it. And the whole issue is the fact that your sin is overwhelming you and you can't perform well enough. So you keep it all, you keep the pretending going. You manage your guilt and fear. You don't confess it and run from it. You don't let others in and you're really, really tired. Or possibly you live in fear. This is a big one. What if someone finds out? What if somebody knows who, who I really am? And, and by the way, you, Tim, you talk about repentance all the time, and I'm afraid to repent. Because I know what it is, really. I know what it is. Repentance isn't just a word you say or a sentence you say or a prayer you make. Repentance is leaving something. What if I have to leave something? What if I have to confess it to my wife or my kids or my church or my friends? What do I have to tell them? What if I tell them that story? I'm not willing to do that. Too much cost. And we're, we're really twisted in thinking that somehow God blesses those who perform well. And so if I acknowledge that I'm not, then I lose his blessing. So fear pushes us around. Some of us have a troubled heart and angry. In fact, you're here and you do work hard. And you're not seeing answers to the prayers that you're making. Or um, you look at your life and go, shouldn't it be better than this? And so you have these moments with God, like, come on, God, really? I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can, and so God is disappointing you, and you're now in this bitter place because God should know, and he hasn't. Or you're possibly sitting here today, and your whole Christian experience is joyless living. You've worked and worked and worked, and there's no happiness, and there's no joy in work. And so your version of, of, of what God wants you to do is, is without understanding God's grace and you serve out of duty, without thankfulness, without love, without joy. You just grind it out and you do what God wants you to do and you don't like it and it's miserable. Isn't that true? Or because of our sin, we have a tendency to have these proud comparisons. The reason why the church doesn't matter but the church markets in gossip is because we love to tell the failures of others because if somebody else fails, what does it do for me? right? If they fail, I feel better. It's twisted, right? We would never, never articulate those words, but somewhere in our, in our storytelling is joy, like really weird joy, demented joy, like, why don't you hear what John did? Because what you don't say, the next sentence is, and I would never, right? So we make those comparisons 
those cheap, look down on other comparisons. So listen, church, listen very carefully. If we don't get this, really get this and understand and believe the graciousness of God so you don't have to prove yourself, then, then you'll spend your life trapped in performance. One, proving yourself to you that you married it. Two, pro- proving yourself to people around you. Or ultimately, and I think this is the biggest struggle, proving yourself to God. We have a we have a preaching collective every, like a week and a half out of the Sunday. So a, a week ago Wednesday, um, we had a, a preaching collective moment about this issue. And Luke Simmons was on the board writing out all the ways or all the places in which we try to prove ourselves. And it was people and it was employers and it was children and it was wives and husbands and all those types of things. And I thought, you know what? All those things are really side issues to this performance for God. Like the essence of the gospel about how God feels about me and what he did to secure it is what we wrestle with. Not the ability to, to answer the questions, but to have that truth come down into our souls and change my demeanor and my man-made effort. That's the struggle. And so if you don't get grace, look very carefully, listen very carefully, you will never stop dancing for others. Ever. You'll never quit. You don't know how to quit because every bit of your security is wrapped up in what you do. And all your fears are are lined up to your inability to do them. And so it's just twisted on and off and on and off work. Do you understand, church? And that's why when Jesus presents grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, it is the most earth-shattering phrase mankind ever heard. Because nothing works that way. Free? No effort? Can't lose it, really? So true that it affects my security and my peace? Absolutely, absolutely. I I want to go to this passage in Luke chapter 15. It's a very familiar story. And uh, I always wrestle with telling familiar stories because I'm worried that you're gonna check out. Oh yeah, I know that one. I I need you to listen, okay? Just like pretend with me for a second um, that you're hearing it for the first time. And let the Holy Spirit kind of teach you. That's one of his roles. So um, there are two so what's I'm going to make out of this. And you could make a million, right? There's been thousands of sermons delivered on this story of the prodigal son. Some say prodigal father. Some say prodigal sons. Either way, here's the story in verse 11 of chapter 15. And he said, that's Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, forgive me. Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, now, I like the way the NIV says that better, when he came to his senses. Like when it dawned on him that he was stupid in his decisions, this is what he did. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I'll rise and I'll go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, and he's now found there are two things I want to say to you, right? You could take an angle of, of the Father, uh, heart of God here and spend like weeks uh, digging through this text for that. You could spend some time looking at the sinful son, the, the son who said, I want all of your good things, but none of you. You could spend some time looking at the brother, the second brother who, who um, struggled with this kind of grace. But I want to just use them both for a little bit to, to, to illustrate this twisted perspective on God's grace in our life. The first son, we're very familiar with the story. This guy said, um, I'm done with you. I'm ready to go. In fact, in that culture, to, to ask for your inheritance um, before your father was dead was just the same as saying, I wish you were dead because the only thing you can provide for me, the only thing I want is what you have. And he did that, he went off and squandered it. When he comes to his senses, I want you to look at verse 19, because these are my, I just got two verses to make my point. Verse 19, he thinks to himself, here's my problem. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And that's exactly what he went home and told his dad, isn't it? When his father came running to him, he says, listen, I, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm done. Just put me in the bunkhouse. I'll work for you. And isn't that a twisted perspective on sin? There are some of you sitting here today who are, who's got so many charges against your account with sin and failure, you're absolutely convinced that you belong in the bunkhouse and, and not in the king's mansion. Like somehow what you've done, what you continue to do is so great, so mammoth, that you have to say this kind of thing spiritually to God. Like, you know what, God? Man, if you could just get me, I mean, I'll hang around the edges. I, I, I'm no, I, you shouldn't call me a son because I've failed too great. Is that a twisted perspective on grace? Yes or no? Yes. Second son, he sees the party. He hears the joy. He comes in from work. He's probably sweaty. He's probably done stuff he doesn't want to do in order that his dad might be pleased with his efforts. He comes home, sees the party, doesn't think it's fair, and his statement, look at it with me, I think it's in verse uh, 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your commandment. And yet here you are throwing a party for that guy. 
There are some of you in here who don't have this huge, gory record of perpetual failure. You've got hard work. You've got Bible study. You've got good kids. You've got all these things, and you look at those and go, I don't really need grace either. You see, they're both twisted perspectives on grace. One thinking sin's bigger than God's grace. The other one thinking my ability, my performance, my obedience means I deserve it. Because that's what the older son thought. Listen, I deserve this more than he does. I've been working for her. That's what he said. There's no way we understand grace when we wrestle with those things. Tim Chester, who wrote this book, we're kind of using as our kind of impetus behind this series He said this, without grace, we view life as a contract between us and God. We do good works, and in return, he blesses us. When things go well, we're filled with pride. When things go badly, we either blame ourselves and feel guilty, or we blame God and we get bitter. It's true, isn't it? It's kind of swinging the gate of both. In in the Belgic Confession, it says, without justifying faith, people never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Listen, church, that's not grace. Grace. It's hard to understand. It's only described here in the scriptures, only revealed in the person of Jesus, only only authored by God himself for sinners because there's no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't be too bad to outrun it. So, if this idea of God's grace eliminates our, our need to prove ourselves, then you need to wrestle with this truth. Whenever we try to impress God or prove ourselves to others, we're suggesting or declaring ourselves to be a better Savior than Jesus. Isn't it true? Whenever you try to earn or merit God's favor, God's attention, God's salvation, God's eternity, whenever you're working for it, then you're suggesting somehow that Jesus, his finished work, isn't necessary or good enough, that you can be a better Savior. And that, that's why this is a struggle. Let me, let me take you to another passage in Hebrews. If you turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 10. If you have one of the Bibles we gave you, it's page 652. The writer of Hebrews describing this high priest Jesus, um, he says some amazing things. But this particular section in verse 11 and 12 just blows my mind. And I, I want to kind of paint a picture for you. Um, and, and the writer, um, some say it was Paul, either way, uh, uses this ongoing real picture of what priests were doing, contrast compared to what Jesus did, and then suggests the outcome for people who believe that should be like Jesus. So, so look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. You're a priest in the Hebrew culture, every day you're on the job. It's a 24 hours a day, never close responsibility, standing on your feet, constantly making sacrifices for the inability of people, the sin and failure of people. Sacrifice, 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 work, work, work. Never rest, never sit, sacrifice, right? Look at what he says in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... What's to say he did? He sat down at the right hand of God. (laughs) Totally opposite of what the priests were doing. 
to deal with the ongoing sin. Jesus, he gives himself, he satisfies the wrath of God that was against our sin and the chasm that exists between righteousness and sinfulness, and he takes a seat. And he tells his bride, sit down. Stop working. You don't have to strive anymore. It isn't that he finished the work to send you off to earn it. He sits down. He rests in his finished work. We rest in it as well. So I want to lean on the responsiveness to this truth of God's grace. So what do you do about it? I suggested this last week, but it's even, it's, it's more crystal this week, and that is get close to Jesus. Proximity is everything. Jesus said of himself in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know, and I do know. I was going to say, I don't know why we don't get close to Jesus. I know there are all sorts of idols out there we talked about last week that present themselves as a counterfeit or whatever. We find small perverted joys in little things, and so we forsake the great thing for that. But don't you remember, church, just think about it. Don't you remember when your proximity to the gospel in Jesus Christ was so fresh and so new, everything paled by comparison? Don't you remember when all those formal or former idols and satisfactions looked grotesque and disfigured in the light of Jesus' gospel? Don't you remember that? Don't you remember leaving it? Don't you, don't you remember running away from that and forsaking that and confessing that? I had that moment. It was 1980. The lights came on. I said, if that's true, if that gospel's true, I'm walking away from this. I'm ending that, I'm getting rid of this, I'm confessing that. It just all came out of me. I didn't know anything. I, I wasn't mature in my faith. It was Holy Spirit-driven. I want Jesus more than anything else. So church, if you're sitting here today and you're going, well, uh, I struggle with grace. Because I'm one of those ones in here, Tim, that you mentioned before that has such a big list of failures that I struggle believing that God is not angry with me. Or you might be sitting here going, I, I struggle just the opposite. I'm, I'm here feeling like I do deserve some of this. I have earned a better life than he is giving. So I am a little bit bitter. You get close to Jesus, here's my promise. I think it's the Holy Spirit promise. I think it's a biblical promise. Everything pales in comparison to the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Everything. And it, it takes a little bit of... Um, I'm going to use a dirty word here, discipline, right? Nobody likes spiritual things like um, having a perspective on grace come through my diligence. Um, but Paul, here's, here's a, a man who clearly understood grace, taught grace. We know about grace because of Paul's writings. He talked about this idea of how much effort he gave to chasing Jesus. So... Um, do you believe that his yoke is easy? His burden is light? Need some time? Question needs to be reformulated. Do you believe his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Yes. And it's, um, it is so certain for you, church, that 
you're missing just one little nuance. Being so overwhelmed with the picture of Jesus and grace that he provides that everything else will grow dim. Right? There's a second thing I think we should do, and I'm going to use the word I used last week, and I'm going to use every week we get together, this word called repent. And let me redefine it because sometimes I hear people talk about it inappropriately. Repentance has been said that, you know, it's a military term used to describe an about face, right? And some people describe repentance like you're doing bad things, you leave bad things to pursue the better things, the good things, the great things, right? That you leave bad and go to good. It's not leaving bad to go to good. It's forsaking all works, Walking away from every good, every good thing you could do, every bad thing you do, and say it's Jesus alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. There isn't any other hope. I can't be good enough. I can't be righteous enough. I don't care what the comparisons are. There's nothing else. It's Jesus. So I forsake it all. I forsake it all. Isn't that how we get up every morning, church? We get up and say, every morning, Jesus alone, grace alone. I don't care how good the day is or how bad the day is. I don't get measured based on my failures or on my successes. Repent. Repent of all things, not just bad but good, and turn only to Christ. So let me give you a little couple of encouragements. You're now free to stop trying to vindicate yourself before God. You're free to rest in the absolute finished work of Jesus. You're free. As much as I can define that word, as much as I can convince you of that word, it's true. Let me give you something else to do. Here's what I can promise you. I'm not prophetic in this way, but I know it's going to happen. You're going to fail this week. There's some, some idol that you confessed last week. It's going to prop its head up again this week. Um, there is some bit of self-righteousness that's going to come. There's some bit of doubt or fear that's going to come. Here's what I want you to do. When you fail and you will fail, get up and walk free in grace. And here's why. Let me read you this passage in Colossians chapter 2, um, verse 13. Here's what it says. I love the, the picture that's painted here by Paul. And you who were dead in your transgressions or your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of dead that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities that put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Picture this, right? Picture this. Everything you struggle with, every time you're bitter, every time you resent, every time you're self-righteous, every time you lust, every time you covet somebody else's stuff, every time you're materialistic, every time you put hope in people, every time you put hope in money, every time you sin, all of those charges were carefully detailed in the record of God. When Jesus hung on the cross, those charges were nailed to the cross. The blood of Christ covered all of the accusations. You were made righteous and holy before God, and nothing can separate you from that truth. Amen? When you fail, you will fail. All these voices will start talking. You'll start talking. I should know better. I should have done something different. God's not happy with me. I need to try harder. Satan will say, well, are you really a believer? Do believers ever act like that? Do they ever struggle with the sin you're struggling with? Whatever voices there are out there, right? You get up and you say, the charges were nailed to the cross of Christ. They're covered. I walk free. 
not free, you know. We, you've heard people say, well, don't, don't communicate grace too much because people will abuse it. They'll abuse it. Yeah, they will. And yeah, you do. We're so twisted, even after conversion, the flesh still wanders and, and either by its own self-righteousness or its own failure tries to prove itself and the gospel covers you. So when you fail, get up, walk free. I'm gonna finish with this. Here's what happens to me, and I don't know, and, and maybe we're similar, okay? When I struggle, no matter what direction you pick, it's like all these accusations start coming. Fear comes up big time. And, and uh, in our culture, we're losing lots of things, but particularly in our culture, people are deciding to define themselves based on their particular bent of sin, you know? It's so, um, and I, you've heard me say this before, we get more encouragement sometimes hanging around in a group of people who fail like we do in the same category of thought as we do because we feel better. Now I feel better. You understand the struggle. And there's some legitimacy to that. But let me, let me just tell you one of my concerns. One of my concerns is that we're more encouraged by sharing our failures with other people who share our failures than we're encouraged about Jesus, his death and resurrection and what it declares over us. The new names, the new titles, the new designations. So let me just overwhelm you with biblical truth about who you are in Jesus and his grace. Now, don't write it down. Don't look around Absorb it. Let the Holy Spirit tell you who you are. Listen to this. I'm a child of God, John chapter 1. I'm a friend of Jesus, John 15. I've been justified and redeemed, Romans 3. My old self was crucified with Christ. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I will not be condemned by God. I've been set free from the law of sin and death. As a child of God, I'm a fellow heir with Christ. I've been accepted by Christ. I've been called a saint. I'm a new creature in Christ. I've become the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm no longer a slave but an heir and a child of the king. I've been set free in Christ. I'm chosen and holy and blameless before God. I'm redeemed and forgiven by the grace of Christ. I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. I'm seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. I've been made alive in Christ. I've been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. I'm a citizen of heaven. I've been made complete in Christ. I've been raised with Christ in God. My life is hidden in Jesus. I have been chosen by God, and I'm holy and beloved. And I only picked a little bit. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because when you're in there striving, right, striving to make yourself acceptable to you or yourself acceptable to others or yourself acceptable to God, you're functionally not believing this is what he's done for you. This is not a future hope, by the way, church. This is now. These are all the things we are in Jesus' finished work now. He died, nailed the charges to the cross, covered his blood, and he sits down. So, church... Take your rest in him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this gospel and for the truth that the work that you've accomplished is a better work than any self-made righteousness we could offer. And it speaks a better word than our insecurities and our fears and our constant walking away and wanderings. God, uh, we have a tendency to fear that you're like us that you 
discover more and more day by day about us and get tired of our act. God, I confess that as sin. I pray for us as a people, God, that we would get how gracious you are and we'd stop trying to prove ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.